Well, turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 9. Last week we saw, um, as Chris pointed to in the, in the worship, just a wonderful story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip was a guy who was one of the seven. He was then really removed from Jerusalem because of the persecution. He fled Jerusalem. He starts to go to Samaria. And he, although he flees Jerusalem, he doesn't flee the faith. He takes the gospel with him. Samaria starts to have this incredible revival. God moves him to a road on the way to Gaza. And this Ethiopian eunuch gets saved. And through it all, you get to see how the gospel truly is unstoppable. And that in it and through it and around it, God is always on the move. And what a treat that was to see, don't you think? Well, this week, Dr. Luke wants to draw our attention to Saul. Now, for those of you that have been around a while, you'll know that Saul's name changes to Paul. And you may think, oh, I wonder what caused the change. Nothing. It's just that Saul is his Hebrew name and Paul is his Roman name. It's the same person. It's just different facets of uh, the language. And this week, Dr. Luke no doubt wants to draw our attention to Saul, a man who is hugely significant in the Bible, a man who would play a part in the conversion of millions of people, a man who would plant churches throughout the Roman Empire, a man who would go on to pen over a third of the New Testament, a man whose unlikely conversion story is penned for us right here in the first 19 verses of Acts chapter 9. So let's read it together. And let's be aware that God is addressing us through this story today. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. Laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, 
he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, this really is sharper than a double-edged sword. And I pray that today it would pierce our souls. Lord, that we would be wounded by your word, that we would be encouraged and affected and equipped and, and mesmerized as we see this story of grace. And so, Holy Spirit, would you do your work, the work that no preacher can ever do? Would you open hearts? Would you let scales fall from our eyes today? And would we find ourselves in wonder then at the risen Christ, our joy? Lord, help us do these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Encountering a good, well-written story, particularly a true one, as I've said before, is an exhilarating experience, isn't it? I love true stories because you encounter them and you hear stories of courage, of grace, of, of faithfulness, of love, of valor. And it affects you. It affects you to the very core of who you are as you either hear it or you see it or watch it or you hear it read to you. And as far as good true stories go, this story that we have here in Acts chapter 9, I think should find itself on the outstanding category. Because it's an incredible story. In this story, we have an incredible picture of grace, which is a title for this morning's message, an incredible picture of grace. Because that's exactly what it is. It's a story of God on the move and then affecting people even like Paul. It's a story of his unmeasured, undefiled, abounding grace and the way it reaches to mankind, even fallen mankind. And as we see it this morning, I think it's a story that if we pay attention and we are perceptive, we see it's a picture of grace that our faces are all into. This isn't just a picture that goes, oh, that's interesting. But I think when you study it, and meditate it, you realize there's a crowd around this story. And that's us. Our faces. And the chapters and years and decades to come are seen right here in Acts chapter 9. And so I have three points this morning. It's not a complicated message, which is good news. So point one is the unlikely candidate. Point two is the unlikely salvation. And then point three is the unlikely sequel. And I want us to study this and seek to enjoy it together and treasure it for all it's worth. So number one, the unlikely candidate. Who's the unlikely candidate? Saul. He was the most unlikely guy to ever become a Christian. You see, prior to Acts chapter 9, there have been two parallel storylines running through the book. And I'm sure you've heard them by now and you've perceived them by now. Two parallel lines that, that run at the same time. On the one hand, we see the gospel spreading ever since Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And Jesus gathers the disciples around him and he says, listen, the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to give you power. And then you dudes are going to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And just as they stand in shock, he disappears, he's ascended, and they wait in Jerusalem, they receive the Holy Spirit, and that's exactly what starts to happen. They start to preach the gospel in Jerusalem and thousands get saved. And then they go to Samaria, and thousands get saved. And they go to Judea, and thousands get saved. One of the main storylines is the gospel spreading in its unstoppable nature. And yet at the same time, the other subplot storyline is the gospel being opposed, isn't it? 
It's written here all the time. Acts chapter 4, Peter and John being warned by the Sanhedrin. Acts chapter 5, the apostles being arrested and warned that that's it, not a moment longer, you must never do this again. And then Acts chapter 7, they do do it again, and Stephen is dragged before the Sanhedrin. He's falsely tried, and he is then unjustly stoned to death for his faith. There is opposition plentiful in these opening chapters of Acts, running at the same time as we see the gospel actually advancing. And enemy number one of this gospel is Saul. He's introduced to us in Acts chapter 7, verse 58. During the stoning of Stephen, this faithful man of God, there is one man in chapter 7, verse 58, who is standing, it says, giving approval to all that's taking place. And he's basically just holding people's coats. He would love to get involved, but he's just enjoying being able to hold people's shoes and coats and everything else. And he's watching this whole scene play out with a smile on his face because he hates the gospel. And so killing Stephen, that's his pride and joy. That's the guy we're introduced to here. We then see him, without doubt, in chapter 8, being reintroduced to us in the same vein. She saw hated the gospel. He was a young man, most likely in his 20s. He was a deeply religious man. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a dude that if you encountered him, you would find an individual deeply holding to Jewish laws and traditions in every way. But he was also a zealot. Not only did he hold to the Jewish values, he was zealous with it. And he knew full well that Jesus, preaching this gospel, this was a gospel that was contrary to what he understood And so he zealously opposed it. He was giving his life in his late 20s to seeing Jesus and him crucified, destroyed and wiped off the memory of the whole planet. That's what he's passionate about. And so in Acts chapter 8, verses 1, this is what we see him doing. Read it with me. He says, And there arose on on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But listen, but Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Do you see that? You know, that word that's translated here from the Greek as ravaging, most often in the Greek, that is actually a term that talks about how a wild beast would treat a body. That's the scene that Dr. Luke is trying to help us see. He's trying to help us see Paul isn't just like this quiet spy that's going around the church and just, I think there's one in there, and going in and sort of pulling them out and doing it all discreetly. He's a maniac. He's like a wild beast. He is going from house to house, and where he's finding Christians, he is pulling them out, men and women alike, by their hair. He is dragging them out. He is beating them, and he's making sure they're arrested with the hope that they will die just like Stephen. That's the guy we're encountering here. He's a Christian terrorist, in effect. He's terrorizing our faith. And in chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, we see that Saul is without doubt still on the hunt. Look with me again. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, meaning Christianity, men or women, he wasn't fussy, 
he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now again, in the Greek, that isn't just he, he breathed threats and murder. It's actually he breathed in threats and murder. So what he's basically saying is like a wild animal breathes in the hunger of killing things. That's what Saul is like. He's going from house to house. Wants to see all Christians crushed and devastated and wiped off the face of the earth. My friends, that is who we're talking about here. And what an unlikely candidate he is, don't you think? You may think, well, maybe he didn't hear the gospel. Oh, yes, he did. On many occasions. Many believe he was probably a guy that actually heard Jesus preach at different times. He hated the gospel. He hated what he was hearing. He heard it from the mouth of Stephen. And then he's looking on at the stoning of Stephen with great approval. He knows the gospel and he wants to stand absolutely against it. He hates it. He's an unlikely candidate. But as Cornelius Plantinga writes, one of my favorite quotes, he says, human sin is stubborn, but not as stubborn as the grace of God. And not half so persistent, not half so ready to suffer to win its way. Don't you love that? And that's when we come then to the unlikely salvation. Look with me at verse 3. This man who is on his way to Damascus to kill Christians. He, He knows that the gospel is advancing there. He wants to make his way up there to cut it off and to find any Christians he can to pull them out so that they can be bound and put in prison in Jerusalem. He's on his way there. And then we read verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul is on his way to Damascus. He is approaching Damascus. It's a 150-mile trip. He's been going for one week. One week. He's practically drooling at the thought of about to enter because he's aware, this is exciting now. I'm going to get him. The very life passion. I'm about to walk through the doors of Damascus. And he finds himself then in Middle Eastern territory in midday sun. If you've ever been in Middle Eastern territory territory in midday sun, as it says in Acts 22, it is in your face brightness. It's already bright. Yesterday we went to DY. That was full on bright. Middle East is even brighter. And then within that, look, within the heat of the day and the brightness of the day, we then see a light from heaven flashing around him. A light that is far brighter than even what he's experiencing in that moment. And that word that's translated there as flash most often talks about in the premise of lightning. So Saul is on his way to Damascus to kill Christians. And yet as he's about to enter in, a light shines from heaven, which is literally overwhelming to him. It's like lightning flashing around him. He wonders what on earth is going on, and then he hears a voice. Somebody calling his name. And he says, you know, who who are you, Lord? Which in effect just means, sir, who are you, sir? Who's speaking to me? And Jesus makes it clear, Saul, it's me, the risen Christ. It's Jesus. See, God in his grace was on the move. And Jesus was on the move to encounter 
Saul. On the road to Damascus, Saul encounters the risen Christ quite differently from any other encounter. The disciples had already encountered the risen Christ a few weeks earlier. They'd encountered him in his resurrection body. But now Saul encounters Jesus Christ in his resurrection glory. He's now seated at the right hand of the Father. And the sheer light then is just the glory that emanates from him. And so much so that Saul is blinded in this moment. He encounters Jesus Christ in his resurrection glory. And he's broken. In an absolute moment, he breaks before the Lord. See, look with me at verse 7. It says, The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. The men who were with him in this moment were totally perplexed. Acts 22 tells us that they heard a voice, but they couldn't make out what was being said. They definitely didn't see a risen Christ. They saw light and they heard a voice, but they don't know what was going on. But Saul knows exactly what was going on. He's aware, I have just encountered the risen Jesus Christ and his glory. And he's broken. In a moment, he shattered before the Lord. See, I want you to notice the massive change that happens in Saul's life. Verses 1 and 2, he is confidently on his way to Damascus. He's full of swagger. He's full of arrogance. He's full of strength. He knows what he's doing. And yet when we get to these verses, verse 8 and 9, he's a broken man. He's on his hands and feet in the dust. He's blinded. And he will indeed enter Damascus, but not full of swagger and arrogance. He will enter Damascus with his friends holding his hand in weakness because he can't even find his way. This man in this moment is totally broken, but he's also been totally and utterly transformed. See, there is no doubt that he has had a huge life change in this moment. Verse 1 and 2, Saul, full of arrogance, full of pride, full of swagger, breathing in threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. But by verse 17, it is clear that a dramatic transformation has taken place. God sets aside a man called Ananias. Ever wondered why he had to be called Ananias? Why didn't he ask somebody else? Well, it's because Ananias literally means God is gracious. God sets aside this man whose name is God is gracious. And he says to him, I need you to go into Damascus to talk to Saul. Straight away, Ananias is like, oh, is that the same Saul that's like, you know, breathing in threats of murder? Is he the same one that's like dragging people out by the hair? Because I think I'm busy. I've got something on that day. And God makes it clear, Ananias, it is the same one. But I've chosen him for my work. I've saved him by my grace. I've called him to come and he's going to speak to to Israel and and kings and Gentiles. I need you to go. Ananias, will you go? And Ananias, believing in the Lord, he goes to him. God is gracious, attends to Saul needs. And in verse 17, listen, listen to what he says. So Ananias departed and entered the house. 
And laying his hands on him, he said, quote, Brother Saul. A great transformation has taken place. Saul was breathing out threats against all Christians. Ananias may well have known people that were murdered at the result of Saul's work. But as now he goes to him, with the name God is gracious, he embraces Saul and before he prays on him, he calls him brother. Saul has gone from death to life. Saul has gone from being a rejecter of God to in this moment being a part of the family of God. Saul has been utterly devastated having encountered the risen Christ and he is without doubt in these three days of not eating or not drinking and spending time with the Lord. He has without doubt put his faith in Jesus Christ to the point where Ananias now rocks up and says, you're my brother, you're my family, you've been forgiven of your sin, you've been reconciled to the Lord, you're now my brother, Saul. Isn't it beautiful? He's gone from a fighter to the go- of the gospel to family in the gospel. And then in verse 18 it says, And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Saul has been utterly transformed. He's gone from a fighter of the gospel to family. He's gone from a seeker of Christians to pull them out by their hair and then see that they may get killed to now a stayer as he stays with the disciples in Damascus because he's realizing, I'm one of you now. I'm one of you, brothers. I want to be with you. And as the story continues, which we'll say next week, he's also gone from Christian persecutor to gospel proclaimer as God will use him as the apostle to the nations to take the gospel out. The very place that he was going, Damascus, to find Christians, to kill them, is now the place he wants to stay, just to add weight to them so he can proclaim the gospel alongside them. What a transformation, do you think? An unlikely candidate, a profoundly unlikely man to get saved. And yet he is. An unlikely salvation takes place. And what a picture of grace then this is, don't you think? What a glorious picture of grace. If you wanted to turn anywhere in the Bible and see God's amazing grace at work, this is a great moment. God in his grace saving Saul, interrupting Saul's life. A man that couldn't even see or grasp the gospel. Jesus in the moment rocks up and in a moment opens his blind eyes. He falls to the ground. He's overwhelmed and broken. And he puts his faith in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior and then becomes part of the family. What a picture of his grace. You know, as Dr. Luke pens this letter onto a parchment for Theophilus, there's no doubt that as he does so, he wants him to see and be inspired by this picture of the gospel. He does. He wants him to see. Theophilus, you know last week, and I told you about the Ethiopian eunuch, it was very cool. But check this out. Check out this story of Saul. He was enemy number one to the gospel, enemy number one to Christianity. 
And yet God in his grace turns up, blows him off his horse, in a moment opens his eyes and he sees the gospel and responds to Jesus Christ. And he then takes his place as a gospel proclaimer. Theophilus, I want you to realize the gospel is unstoppable. Not even enemy number one can stand in the way of the gospel. When God is on the move, when Aslan is on the move, no one can stand. He wants Theophilus to see the unstoppable gospel on the move afresh. But if you're really going to delight in this text, you have to understand why is he highlighting Saul? Because it's specific. Everybody's salvation story is great. And everybody's salvation story is worthy of mention. Everybody's salvation story is an evidence of the gospel and God in his grace being on the move. But the reason why Luke takes time to help us see about this gospel story is because it's Saul's story. The Saul who would go on to be Paul, the apostle to the nations. And it's when you meditate on that and stop and consider that that you realize there are other faces then in this story. People who would go on in years and decades and centuries and millenniums afterwards through Paul's proclamation of the gospel ever increasingly going out to the world. People that would be living in Africa and England and Malaysia and the Philippines and in Australia through Paul's proclamation of the gospel from one to another to another to another in centuries to come would one day go on to put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. This is the great explosion of grace happening right here. We are focusing on Saul's story because in his story, if we are perceptive within this picture of grace, we should see there are other people. Other people like me and you. Other people that include me and you. As this man prepares to take the gospel to the nations. And that's what brings us to point three. The unlikely sequel. See, when it comes to the miracle of salvation, it can be so easy, as I thought about it this week, to think of our salvation story as utterly different from Paul's. Have you ever read that? And you just think, this is so cool, but it's you know, quite different from mine. See, if you're a first-generation Christian, meaning that your parents weren't Christians, you may have a story. You may remember, you know, I came along to a meeting, or somebody encountered me, and they told me about Jesus. Well, I remember it to the day, because it was just amazing. I put my life in Jesus Christ and I, I became a Christian. And it was, it was awesome. It wasn't quite like Paul's. You know, I didn't seem a light or anything. and wasn't even riding a horse at the time and didn't remember falling off anything. But I remember it. I remember this big change. But if you're a second generation Christian like me, meaning that you grew up in a Christian home, I think one of the challenges of that can be that we, we minimize our salvation stories if to say, well, this is a cool story, but I don't really have a story. I can't really remember a day. It was kind of more a season I remember at the end of the season realizing, oh, I believe in Jesus. And you ever tempted to make up parts of your testimony then? To like make it sound better? Oh, yeah, and then I, th- well, I thought about drugs. I didn't do drugs, but I thought about them. Have you ever wanted to just add things in to try and make it a bit more miraculous? You know, if the Apostle Paul was here, if he could actually speak to us today, I want to encourage you. I think he would sit us down as Christians whether we be first generation or second generation or third generation, and he would want us to see your salvation story is as much a miracle as mine. 
The fact that you became a Christian, that is astounding grace. That is an evidence of God on the move. And I know he'd be saying that because it's exactly what he tells the Ephesians. See, listen, listen, sovereign grace. Listen to this and perceive your story. Because at the start of Ephesians chapter 2, this is exactly what Paul, having been saved by God's amazing grace and having planted a church in Ephesus, now writes to them about. Ephesians chapter 2, he says, As for you, you, sovereign grace, as for you, you are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. See the way you use we? You were just like me. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Right up front, he's helping us see. You want to know what your story is like? I'll tell you what your story is like. It's just like mine. You may not have been a persecutor of Christians, but just like me, you were dead. You were lost. You weren't pursuing the Lord. You didn't care. And as a result, you were an object of his righteous wrath. My friend, sometimes we can domesticate God and think of him like Santa Claus. Oh, he's so friendly. And then Hebrews looks us in the eye and says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. To fall into the hands of the righteous wrath of God is a fearful thing. Who can stand? It's a dreadful thing to consider what the wrath of God really is. That Paul is saying, you once lived as an object of this. You're an object of his ongoing, persistent wrath. And as each second of your life dripped away, you were on a collision course with his righteous anger. And so was I. But then he continues... But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. My friends, isn't this wonderful? The Apostle Paul himself, on the back of his great story, pulls the church into himself and says, you are just like me. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, just like me. You're an object of his righteous wrath, just like me. None have come after the Lord. All like sheep have gone astray. No one's come looking. And yet God in his mercy came after you. God in his grace before the foundation of the earth chose you. At the right time he then sent his son to die in your place. And at the right time, whether it be through a parent or a sister or a friend or a pastor, Jesus has encountered you in the gospel and you responded. And even that faith that you responded with, that didn't come from you. That was a gift. So that no man may boast. Do you see it? Your story is the most unlikely sequel to Acts chapter 9. Because of rights, none of us should be in the room. If God in his grace hadn't opened our eyes, none of us would come. We are all running headlong to hell. 
We may not be a persecutor of Christians. We may not have murdered anybody. But we have committed ultimate treason in rejecting Christ and him who is crucified in God. And yet God says, you know what I'm going to do for you? You know what I'm going to do for Alex? Riley and Allison and Briar and Mike. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to rock up on their road. And I'm going to break into their life. And they may not see lights, but I'm going to break open their eyes and in a moment they're going to love me as Lord and Saviour and they're going to be saved. That, my friends, is a miracle of grace. We are the unlikely sequel. And so as we see that then, how do we apply this? How do we live in light of this picture of grace? Having viewed it and delighted in it, how are we to respond to this Clearly evident, glorious picture of grace, which we're into. Well, three things to close. How do we respond? Number one, I think we respond with fresh humility before God. Fresh humility before him. Mark Webb says it this way, just wonderfully. He says, God intentionally designed salvation so that no man might boast of it. He didn't merely arrange it so that boasting would be discouraged or kept to a minimum. He planned it so that boasting would be absolutely excluded. It's true. What did Saul bring to his salvation story? What did you bring to your salvation story? Your sin. Then it's all him. It's all his work. It's all his initiative. It's all God on the move. He deliberately designed it that way so that we could not boast in ourselves, but we could boast in him. If we, by the grace of God, had started and authored our own faith, then there was always a risk that we could lose it because the first name on the list would be ours. Secondarily, we would have cause to boast. And yet God says, none of you came looking after me, but I came looking after you. I came searching after you. I put your picture, your photo in the picture of grace because I wanted you. My friends, an only appropriate response, I think, first and foremostly then, is fresh humility before God, isn't it? You know, Christians, particularly Reformed Christians, should genuinely be the most humble people you ever meet. And yet, sadly, often they're not. But they should be. Because they should be the people that are coming in and about to start singing a song and do so shaking their heads as they think, why me? Why am I here? Lord Jesus, why, why did you rock up on my road? Why were you so kind enough to put your saving grace on my life? Why? Lord, I'm amazed. I'm amazed that you would do that for me. I love you. I, I want you to have it all. Humility shouldn't be something we have to muster up within the context of salvation. An appropriate view of salvation should always bear fruit of humility. As you realize it's all of grace. It's all of him. Second appropriate response. How do we respond to this picture of grace? Here is how. Number two, with fresh Gratitude towards God. 
Not only humility before him, but gratitude towards him. Joe Packer says it well. He says, to know that from, my, from eternity past, my maker, for seeing my sin, for loved me and resolved to save me, though it would be at the cost of Calvary. To know that the divine son was appointed from eternity to be my saviour, and that in love he became man for me, and died for me, and now lives to intercede for me, and will one day come in person to take me home. To know that the Lord who loved me and gave himself up for me and who came and preached peace to me through his messengers has by his spirit raised me from death to life and has promised to hold me fast and never let me go. This is a knowledge that brings me overwhelming gratitude and joy. My friends, would that not be a truth that just brings Dr. Packer overwhelming gratitude and joy? Would that be a truth as we see ourselves in the picture of grace that brings every one of us in the room into a place of overwhelming gratitude and joy? Because it's much to be joyful about. There's much to give thanks about. If you actually believe it's all of grace, then the only thing you brought to the party was your sin and he brought everything to the party. If that doesn't cultivate in our lives, yes, then nothing will. It would make no sense at all if that doesn't excite us. Because it should. If you are aware that you are on a collision course with God's wrath and you are dead in your transgressions and sins and helpless to do anything about it, and yet he pursued you and saved you and opened your eyes and now holds you and holds you fast and will never let you go. That should fuel zeal. Christians should not only be the most humble people, they should be the most joyful people. Not because, it, not because nothing ever happens that's, that's bad in their lives or difficult. That's not what I'm saying. Things do happen that are difficult. But at very root level, we should be able to stand on something and go, Lord, as these things happen in my life, they're saddening. And Lord, these things grieve me. Would you help me with these things? But Lord, as I consider my salvation, oh Lord, I will always praise you for that. I will always be amazed by grace for that. I will always be ecstatic as I consider that. We respond with fresh humility before the Lord. We can respond with fresh gratitude towards God. Here's the third thing. How do we respond? Number three, with fresh confidence in God. My friend Saul was enemy number one to the furtherance of the gospel. He was the most unlikely candidate to ever get saved in the history of humanity, I think. And yet in a moment, Jesus Christ turns his world upside down. In an absolute moment, he comes after him and he turns his world upside down. For human sin is stubborn, but not as stubborn as the grace of God and not half so persistent, not half so ready to suffer to win its way. Jesus Christ came after him in a moment and in a moment changed his life. My friends, that should encourage us to brandish the gospel and take it out. Why? Because Jesus Christ in the gospel is still encountering people today. You may think, you know what, I've told this person though, this family member or this friend, the gospel a thousand times. Nothing seems to be happening. Tell them again. Because when God wants to turn that world upside down, he will. 
You may say, well, they've heard the gospel numerous times and they're not interested. Enter exhibit A, Saul. Didn't care less. Wanted to kill you for it. And yet in a moment he encountered Jesus Christ. He falls to his knees and when he rises, he does so with his arms in the air, worshipping the King of kings and Lord of lords. When God is on the move through the gospel, no one can stand. And church, if that doesn't cultivate faith in our lives for sharing the gospel, then I'm not sure what will. We go with a gospel that God joins himself with and says, I'm going to have my way here. When does the sticky bomb go off? That's the Lord's doing and not ours. But would we go with confidence realizing that it can? And if and when it does, no one will stand against it. Because when Aslan is on the move, no one can stand against him. My friends, good, well-written true stories are an exhilarating experience to encounter. And I submit to you that without doubt, Acts chapter 9 should be on the top shelf of the outstanding category. Because this is a wonderful story that contains within it a glorious picture of his grace. It's a story that presents us with a wonderful picture of a great salvation in Saul. And yet, if we're perceptive, we realize our faces are in it too, don't we? This was the start of how ultimately the gospel would get to me. And this miracle of salvation is the very way my life played out. The details are different, but I was dead. And yet now I'm alive in Christ because he came after me. My friends, as we then see ourselves in that picture, would there be humility before God in our lives? Would we be a humble people? Would there be confidence in God as we proclaim the gospel, realizing he's powerful and he's on the move? And would there be gratitude in our hearts towards God? Because he's worthy of it all. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your abounding and unmeasured and incredible grace. Lord, to consider that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. To consider that we were lost. That we were cut off from you. And yet you in grace pursued us. Lord, would that be a truth that we are slow to move off. Lord, would we meditate on the truth that our stories are all of grace. And would that cultivate in our hearts an affection for you, a love for you, an amazement in you. And Lord, would you have your way in our midst? Would you humble us and would you cultivate gratitude in our hearts towards you? And Lord, would you help us to have confidence in you and the gospel going forward? Because you are truly on the move. And in just the way you're on the move in Acts chapter 9, you're on the move today saving people. Thank you for saving us, Lord. And as we sing now, with all gratitude and all glory go to you. In Jesus' name, amen.